It's the Dockiverse Podcast, episode number 11, The Kitty Cats Drive Route 66. In this episode, we've got a monster movie review, two more short lectures, a free plug, the alphabet a la Doclopedia, and some commentary. Now, let's get into it, folks. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the podcast, which, by the way, I am running late on recording because my laptop is a piece of shit. So I'm back in the kitchen on the main desktop computer doing this. Anyhow, I hope you've had a good couple of days. Today was a quite nice day, actually. I don't think it got more than about the mid-80s, so that was a good change of pace. Everybody here is healthy, and as you no doubt heard from the introduction, I've made a few changes We're going to have uh, monster movie reviews every Wednesday. On Monday, we will have the game reviews, like the one I did the other day. And then on Friday, I'm going to present a character for use in role-playing games or really whatever you want to use them for. I'm not going to assign attributes or any of that stuff. I'm just going to describe a character, and there you go. I have no idea how long this episode's going to run since the last one ran 25 minutes, but we'll see. Anyway, it is now time for me to thank my wonderful, and yes, delightful, patrons over on Patreon for helping support this podcast with cold, hard, electronically transferred cash. Thank you, David, Avis, Bruce, Jame, Marion, and Mark. May your lives be filled with joy, song, and free donuts. Now let's move into the very first monster movie review, and I want to say that what I'm trying to do is do four monster movie reviews a month, all of them with the same theme. And the theme this time is giant insects, big bugs. And yes, for you pedants out there, that does include spiders and arachnids, so quit bugging me. The very first movie is, in fact, the very first giant bug movie, and it's one of my favorites, and it's one of the most highly critically rated of all these giant bug movies. And that is the 1954 movie, Them. It's a black-and-white movie made in America by Warner Brothers, and it was directed by Gordon Douglas, and it stars James Whitmore, Edmund Gwynn, Joan Weldon, and James Arness, among others. The film is based on a story treatment by George Worthing Yates, which was then developed into a screenplay by Ted Sherdman and adaption by Russell Hughes. Them is the first of the 1950s nuclear monster films, And it's the first big bug movie, as I said. And the plot is well known to anybody who's ever seen it. A nest of gigantic irradiated ants is discovered in New Mexico. They become a national threat when two young queens and their consorts escape the nest and get out of there. And that moves everything to Los Angeles, where they finally track the ants down into the storm drains. And it's just a a really excellent movie. It's got good actors in it. It's got a good plot. It uh, has, uh, for the time, pretty effective special effects. And it's just the best. I mean, really is. All the other giant creature movies that came after that are a little bit less, as you'll see as we go along with this series. Uh, A couple of interesting things about this movie. Future uh, Daniel Boone and future Davy Crockett, Fess Parker, plays a guy who is in a psych ward because he saw these ants and the government's trying to keep him quiet. And Leonard Nimoy has a small, uncredited part. 
as U.S. Army Staff Sergeant in the communications room. I think he gets about maybe three lines. I don't know. Uh, Another interesting fact that I didn't know until I went to Wikipedia was that Van Morrison's original band, Them, was named after this film. I didn't know that all these years. I'll also note that because it was made in 1954, Them is the same age as me and Godzilla, for that matter. So if you want to check out a really good giant insect movie, this is the best. And it comes on Turner Classic Movies fairly regularly. I think it's probably on at least once a year. Maybe this year in Halloween they might show it. I don't know. But uh, yeah, good movie. Check it out. Okay, before we move along to the lectures, I just want to point out that I said last episode, or maybe even one before that, that I was going to start putting in interstitial music in between the uh, various portions of this podcast, and I haven't got around to that, and I'm running on limited time tonight, so I probably won't, but someday. Anyway, now we move on to today's lectures. Lecture number one, what to do about Halloween. To start with, Let me be clear that this lecture is not about having Halloween. I know that some people think there should be no Halloween, but they are, to use a technical term my children taught me, poop heads. No, I'm talking about how we will have Halloween while in the middle of a pandemic. We don't want to risk the lives of children, although the lives of certain politicians are up for debate. How will we have Halloween this year? One idea is to have children stay a safe distance back from your door and deliver candy to them via some sort of gadget. One idea is a tube that the candy just slides down, then drops into their bag. This seems like a fine idea that can be done cheaply. You could even try tossing it to them, but your arm would certainly get tired, especially if you live in an area that gets a lot of trick-or-treaters. I cannot, in good conscience, recommend using a trebuchet or a catapult to dispense candy, since my uncle tried that one year at Christmas to hand out presents, and things did not go well at all. My brother is still not fully recovered from taking a direct hit with an Instapot. I read about one fellow who is trying to train his dogs to deliver the candy. Only a person who has never owned a dog would think that is a good idea. Dogs are not stupid, and if you put a bag of gummy bears in their mouth, they will eat them, probably along with the bag. Then you'll have upset children and a constipated dog to deal with. There is no upside to that. Even if you do find a workable candy delivery system, you must deal with wearing some sort of anti-disease costume. We all know that masks and gloves protect us, but do we wear them under our costume or outside it? It seems to me that doing the former would make it harder for others to know if you were a decent person or some anti-mask nitwit, while doing the latter would tend to make everyone look somewhat the same. And really, how scary are Count Dracula or the Wolfman if they're wearing a mask? Finally, a very popular idea is to just dress up and stay at home with a big bowl of candy and some horror movies. I think this is the idea my family will adopt, especially if my own candy bowl has a few bottles of Guinness amongst the full-size candy bars. Good day. Lecture number two. How to be a Dungeon Master As we all know, Dungeons & Dragons has, in recent years, enjoyed a huge resurgence in popularity. Millions of people are playing it, watching it being played on various platforms, reading about it, and spending enormous amounts of money on everything from rule books to miniatures to dice, especially dice. The average role-playing gamer owns more dice than you'll find in Las Vegas on an average day, or even an above-average day. Now, this is all a very good thing. People getting together to tell a story while having fun is an excellent hobby to have. Of course, some of us prefer to gather with our friends to tell stories while having access to assorted liquors, but that is neither here nor there. Actually, it might be there if there is where you'll find a bar stool. But back to what I was talking about. One of the things required to play D&D is a dungeon master. This is the person who plays all the parts that the players aren't playing and tells them what they see and what is going on. They also handle any interpretations of the rules that may be needed. 
although I am assured that the rules now are very clear and easy to understand, back in the old days, interpretation, and often outright deciphering, were very much needed. Most dungeon masters, or DMs as we folks in the know refer to them, also create maps and other handouts for the players. Sometimes they hand out snacks, too. By the way, other names for dungeon masters are Game Master, Storyteller, and the poor SOB who will be stuck DMing 98% of the time for several decades. But how does one become a dungeon master, you ask while trying to steer this lecture back to the point? Well, I shall explain. First, you must familiarize yourself with the rules. Read them over carefully until you have most of them memorized. Barring that, work on your skill at baffling players with bullshit. Actually, work on that first. Next, create a few characters to use as non-player characters or NPCs. This will help you know how character creation is done, which will aid you when your players try to get tricky when creating their player characters or PCs, not to be confused with personal computers which you might want to create, but that lecture for next week over to Elks Lodge. Third, buy all the books necessary, along with miniatures, dice, and other things you'll need. You may need to get a bank loan to do this. Might as well buy a cart, too, since all that stuff will be heavy. Fourth, design your game world. Fill it with memorable characters, thrilling locations, monsters, treasure, and magic. Make it a work of love, but stop short of a work of lust. Fifth, make maps of your game world and various places. You can do this by hand or use various computer mapping products. Sixth, write up an epic campaign designed to last your gaming group for years of fun play. Seventh, assemble some of your friends and start up your first game. Eighth, about 20 minutes into your first game, toss all of your lovingly created world out the nearest window because your players are doing unspeakable things on their way to some place not on your map, all the while obsessing over some off-the-cuff comment you made as flavor text. While you're at it, sell some of those books and buy a case of bourbon. You'll need it. Maybe two cases. Now, using a loud voice, a big stick, and perhaps fire, finish DMing your first game. Ninth, once your players have left, after telling you how much fun they had, drink some bourbon to soften the realization that your career as a DM will consist of you pulling adventures and encounters out of your ass for years or decades to come while also trying to ride herd on a band of murder hobos. Take a couple more drinks then realize that you will be stuck as DM forever. Congratulations, you are now a dungeon master. Good day. Oh yeah, that last lecture was so true. Now we move on to our free plug, and today it's a game system, GURPS, from Steve Jackson Games. GURPS stands for Generic Universal Role Playing System, and it pretty much is. Been around for a long time, and it's a good system. I've played it, and I know people who swear by it. Now, the thing about it is that it tends towards realism, so it's pretty easy to get killed. However, the big thing about GURPS is not so much the game system, it's all the books that are out there for it. During the heyday, especially before Munchkin took off and became Steve Jackson Games' big seller, they put out tons and tons of GURPS books. Setting books, world books, all sorts of books. You want to play in a historical setting? You've got Greece, you've got Russia, you've got the Celtic region, you've got Japan, you've got the Vikings, you've got Aztecs, you've got tons of stuff. There are also books like time travel, dinosaurs, alternate earths. There are books for licensed products like The Prisoner, for various uh, science fiction series, the wildcard series. You can play superheroes, you can play Old West, you can play anything in GURPS, and the source books are great 
even if you don't play GURPS. You can use them with other things. Many, many, many people do. I have about six or seven feet of GURPS books in my game room, and I don't have all of them. Anyway, that's GURPS, and you should really give it a look. Oh ho, gentle listeners. It is now time for the Doclopedia, where our subject is the alphabet. And today, the letters are C and D. C is for Crater City. First off, Crater City, Western Australia, does sit inside a one-mile-wide meteor crater located about 450 miles north by northeast of Perth. But if you're expecting to find a real city, you'll be disappointed. Crater City barely qualifies as a town, let alone a city, and it's not much of a tourist destination. Most tour buses stop at one of the many scenic overlooks around the crater rim rather than drive down the lone, very steep road that goes down into the crater. The few tours that go into the crater are just quick excursions that seldom last more than a couple of hours. The reason for this is simple. The residents of Crater City, all 2,304 of them, are weird. Oh, they may look fairly normal for a bunch of Australian desert rats, but they act very strangely and strange things happen in the town that tend to give outsiders the willies. A few examples are, many of the town folk will stop what they are doing and hum a strange tune for exactly 1 minute and 26 seconds, several times a week, simultaneously, regardless of where each of them might be. Once or twice a month, everybody stops wearing clothes. This lasts for anywhere from 4 hours to 2 days. Earthquakes happen a couple of times a year. They never register on any seismometer, even the 24 that are right outside the crater rim. At any given time, about a quarter of the townsfolk seem to have some form of OCD. Oddly, it only lasts for a few months, then goes away. When it does come back, some months later, their rituals are entirely different than they were before. Very few birds will enter the crater or fly over it. None will enter the town. About once per decade, the town appears to be deserted. No one knows where the people go or even how they get out of the crater without being seen. After a week or two, they'll all be back, but they insist they never went anywhere. And finally, there are no citizens under the age of 25 or over the age of 75 in the whole town. All scientific efforts to study the town have yielded nothing out of the ordinary, except that the scientists all seem a bit freaked out for some reason that they can't explain. As best as anyone can figure, the town was first settled in 1877 by a preacher named Mr. Duncan and his flock of 35 followers. Written records are sketchy, and the first real mention of the town does not appear until 1901 in a newspaper article that expresses amazement that there was an actual town out there. Since then, there have been exactly 12 newspaper or magazine pieces about Crater City. Television reporters who have visited the town twice in the last 60 years didn't like it. Most tour books give it only a sentence or two. In 1999, a film crew went to the town to film a science fiction movie. Filming took place over a three-week period, but the film never got released due to the director and several of the actors and crew going insane about a month after returning to Sydney. Police called their mass suicide drug-related. C is for cold pigs. On Earth-72, there is a large and very dangerous species of swine that lives in the cold subpolar regions. Standing four feet tall at the shoulders and nine feet long from snout to tail, these hogs are covered in dense, thick fur over an even thicker coat of fat. They travel in small herds consisting of one or two boars, three to six sows, and in the spring, up to two dozen piglets. Cold pigs will eat anything they find or can kill. In the summer, they roam the tundra eating plants, small animals, birds' eggs, and carrion. They will chase polar bears, foxes, snow yetis, and wolves away from a kill, although they will only chase away the wolves when they outnumber them. 
Cold pigs also kill and eat humans, elves, and any other humanoids if they get the chance. These giant swine are able to move with great stealth and even greater speed when necessary. Often, the first and last thing their prey see are those razor-sharp foot-long tusks. In the fall, cold pigs move to their winter hunting grounds in the upper range of the boreal forests. Here, they can survive the winter in relative comfort, providing they don't encounter northern goblins, forest dragons, or very large packs of wolves. D is for Dream Gun. When the masked crime fighter known as Brother Knight went out in the evening to hunt bad guys, his favorite weapon was the Dream Gun. Many an evildoer was sent into a blissful dream state after being shot by it, only to snap out of it an hour later behind bars. The gun itself looked like some sort of science fiction ray gun, about the size of a forty-five automatic. It was colored blue and silver and fired small bullets that Brother Knight said were made of concentrated dreams. The police were convinced they were some sort of dope. Whatever they were, they penetrated clothing and even body armor before totally dissolving inside the human body. The dream gun had an effective range of about 120 feet and Brother Knight was a crack shot. When Brother Knight retired in 1951, he passed the gun on to a new young masked vigilante known as Johnny Sweet Dreams, who used it for the next 22 years. Today, the gun is being used by the mutant superhero Dream Girl, who has the power to enter the dreams caused by the dream gun and kick bad guys' asses. D is for Drawn. The Drawn are a race of people on a fantasy version of Earth. They control the Drawn Empire, which on our world would be the lower 25% of California, all of Arizona, and a 100-mile-wide strip of Mexico stretching from the Pacific Ocean to the border of Arizona and New Mexico. Three other species make up the Drawn Empire, all of them under the thumb of the Drawn. Physically, the Drawn look like large, muscular humans with pronounced brow ridges and sharp teeth. Their skin, eyes, and hair are a uniform dark brown. Men average around 6 foot 4 and women average around 6 foot 1. Both sexes wear their hair long and in braids. Both sexes also sport ritual scarring and tattooing. The Drawn were once a totally warrior race. But since they lack the ability to use magic, they have not been able to expand their empire for over 350 years. This has led to them branching out into areas of commerce, where they have done quite well. Drawn traders drive a very hard bargain, but because their race holds to a very strong code of honor, they are among the most honest of sentient beings. Their physical power and prowess with weapons, coupled with that code of honor, also ensure that nobody ever cheats a drawn twice. Besides commerce, many drawn have gone into ranching. The primary livestock they raise is a very wild, very dangerous, and very tasty beast called the Sorgat Buffalo. These creatures resemble a large bison crossed with a longhorn cow and a rhinoceros. Roping one is not unlike roping a speeding armored vehicle that has long sharp horns and a homicidal driver. If a sorgat kills one or more drawn cowboys, it is kept back for breeding and given a noble name taken from drawn mythology. It goes without saying that drawn cowboys are tough customers. A few drawn, those who lack the seemingly species-wide tendency towards severe seasickness, become pirates. They usually join up with humans or elves and sail the western seas from Hadrinia in the south to Frigid Zolzad in the north. Any drawn who becomes a pirate instantly has an imperial death decree on his head, as well as a 5,000 canark reward for their killer. While a rather harsh-seeming people, the drawn are very tender with their children and their mates. Since each drawn male can have two wives and each female can have up to four husbands, families can be very large with exact relationships a bit complex. The drawn can also be very attached to their companion animals, and they often grieve deeply at the loss of a beloved horse, dog, thrack, or hunting eagle. 
The Drawn have their own religion, which is largely ancestor-based and has almost no holy days. They give only a passing nod to the three pantheons, but then again they don't generally talk down anyone's religious beliefs. As mentioned above, the Drawn cannot work magic at all. This is because they are not native to the planet they now inhabit. Just over 500 years ago, the first 10,000 Drawn came to the world in a large starship. This ship never actually landed, but it did send the Drawn and some very basic supplies down. Of the first 10,000, nearly 8,000 were small children. The starship never contacted them again, and legend says this was due to something called a Ganakt Ad overload. No living drawing could tell you what that means. The Drawn, who were actually known by another name back then, were barely surviving in their strange new land when they met up with the kindly Drav people. Physically inferior, but magically superior, the Drav soon arrived at a truce with the Drawn that allowed them to survive and prosper. The Drav were a dying race, but by mating with the Drawn, they ensured a sort of immortality to their line while somewhat softening the harsher edges of the Drawn. Later matings with the conquered human Alaru people shaped the Drawn race even further, mostly physically. In general, Drawn respect humans, are both amused and respectful of elves, are extremely respectful of dwarves, and are quite hateful of goblins, trolls, and the like. While they would never admit it, most Drawn are terrified of wizards. Okay, folks, we're coming down the home stretch, and it's time for a little commentary. And today, I'm commenting on Kickstarter. Now, let me qualify everything I'm about to say by mentioning that I have only supported one Kickstarter effort ever, and that was the third edition of Over the Edge, because I knew who was doing it, I knew the company, and I could afford it at that moment. Most of the reason I have not backed any Kickstarters, even though many, many people I know have done them, and done them successfully, is just because I haven't had the money. Now, Kickstarter is a wonderful thing for people who want to get a game out, and it's a wonderful thing for companies that are already established to sort of test the waters on, well, is this game going to sell? If a company says, you know, we want to do a supplement to our role-playing game, but we got no idea whether it's going to really be popular, let's put it on Kickstarter. Then if they put it on Kickstarter and 200 people support it, well, okay, it's a little printing, they didn't lose any money, everything's good. If they put it on Kickstarter and it makes, say, $100,000 out of a $10,000 original goal, well, then they think, okay, this is a good one. Maybe we'll print a few extra. Now, Kickstarter also has problems, of course. There have been many, many, many failures where people said, yeah, yeah, we're going to take your money and do this, and then nothing. And sadly, a lot of people were shit out of luck. This is one of the reasons I don't back Kickstarters even if I had money, because unless I really know who's doing it, my well-known mistrust of my fellow human beings kicks in, and I just can't give a bunch of money to somebody I don't know. I have a hard enough time giving a bunch of money to somebody I do know. There's a lot of good stuff that's come out of Kickstarter, and I'm sure there'll be a lot more good stuff coming out down the road. Anyway, that's my thoughts on it, and I hope you people who use Kickstarter don't ever get screwed out of any money. Well, folks, we're at the very end of the show. I'm running way late. I should have had this thing up on Patreon about a half an hour ago. But that's how things are working out. It probably won't actually go up till tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon when I can clean up the audio a little bit. Thanks for listening. And uh, if you have any suggestions, comments, or questions, I can be reached on Facebook, where I am Doc Cross, on WordPress at the Docverse blog, via email at agentroscoe at gmail.com, or if you're listening via Anchor, you can leave me a voicemail. If you'd like to support me via Patreon and hear these podcasts weeks before they go up on Anchor, go to www.patreon.com forward slash dot cross. 
If you'd like to sponsor this podcast or advertise on it, get in touch with me by any of the methods I just listed. No, Mr. Bond. I want you to know that this podcast and everything on it, except the music, is copyright 2021 by Doc Cross. And, of course, to die.